This morning we are going to uh, finish up our introduction to Jonah. So Jonah, first of all, how many understand that Jonah was a prophet and this book is called A Minor Prophet and it is not to be allegorically understood but literally as an historical event. Okay, all of what I said, many Christians throw it out the window. They think this is just a story that's talking about something else. Jonah really didn't exist and he certainly didn't write it. And I tell you what, the inerrancy of the Word of God is a doctrine that cannot be lost. And the hermeneutics or how we study it has to be as it's written, not how we want to interpret it. It's so important, especially when we come to prophecies like Jonah. I mean, you can make anything say whatever you want to say. Anything. And that is not the case with Jonah. We need to read it as it's written. And the couple of commentaries that I refer to constantly are doing just that. They are very focused on on the literal aspect of the passage of Scripture, which is important. So Jonah is the author. Many people believe that if you read it, what person is the book written in? How many know English? Two of you. Doyan Santinko. I have no idea what I just said. Many of you can understand that better. I don't know. The point of the matter is when you use pronouns, there are many different, um, uh, three different persons to write it in, right? When you say I, that's what? Us, second person. Them, third person. How many understand that? Well, the book of Jonah was written in the third person. He, his, and how many of you write it in the third person? I think he needs a stake for the fat. We don't usually talk that way, right? But let me ask you this. How many have ever done something stupid? Don't raise your hand, please. (laughs) We've all done really stupid things. We've said stupid things. We've done stupid things. But here's the reality. How many, when you talk about that, maybe put it in the third person? (laughs) How many understand that? One author says it this way, this can't be Jonah that wrote it. He wrote it in the third person. And we never hear about Jonah. Well, that's simply not true. Jesus Himself calls Him a prophet. I will tell you, if Jesus calls Him a prophet, guess what He was? He was a prophet. Moses. How many have ever heard of Moses? Or Elijah or Elijah? You know, they wrote in the third person sometimes. 
So just because it's in the third person doesn't mean that Jonah didn't write Jonah. And contrary to one of the commentators I read that, well, we never heard the last word from Jonah. We have heard the last word from Jonah. And we heard it in the third person. Maybe because he's so ashamed of what he has done. Could be very true. Jonah blew it. And Jonah had a secular worldview. What does that mean? A secular worldview. I will tell you in Jonah's case what that meant. Jonah had a secular worldview in that country came over and more important than God. That's a secular worldview. Nothing and no one can overtake God's primary state, amen, and importance. Well, Jonah, being a prophet of God, should have known that more than anybody else. But we're going to find that Jonah chose country over God. And by the way, how many love reading what took place in the Revolutionary War, the different things that took place there, and maybe the Civil War, maybe World War I, World War II. Some of those things intrigue me also. But it isn't one man that changes a war. Although we look at it and say, well, this man, General Patton, was the guy. Or General Sherman was the guy. Or General George Washington was the guy. Well, here's the reality. God was the guy. Those men are being used by God, but it's God who takes up and puts down each government. Without God, there is no government. There's no one in charge. God does that. And today we're going to see that because today we're going to go through the theological aspects of Jonah. Theologically, this is a big book. This is a huge book. And then lastly, we'll look at the historical context. And then, not next week, but the following week, we will start Jonah, Lord willing, (coughs) Jonah chapter 1, verse uh, 2, because I don't feel like preaching Jonah 1. I don't agree with it, so... no, no. (laughs) Jonah 1.1, exactly. And we will hit the words as we go and try to find out what is God trying to teach us through Jonah. There is a problem in exegeting the text in many ways because of presuppositions. That means ideas that you bring to the text. For instance, during the Civil War and the Revolutionary War for that matter, and frankly, World War II for that matter, I am not as familiar with World War I, but these were all, had, men had ideas of what they'd want to see. Our founding fathers, Revolutionary War, they wanted to be free from England and not have to be governed by them. And they had this preconceived of what they wanted, and they went out and did that. The Civil War, based on Uh, Lincoln's emancipation part of it was the emancipation issue. How that all men are created equal, not just white men. Amen. 
believe it or not, I've told you this before, but I think it's so important, during the birth of our country, nine out of the 13 colonies were run by church states. The church was in charge of the government. Do you know how many problems that brings? Just look at the Middle Ages. Because those churches are run by evil men. Sinful people at bare minimum. In order to vote, you had to be a member of a certain church in that colony. Not only that, but in that law, in the laws of that church, it literally said, do not, do not give the gospel to an African American. Because there's a chance they'll become saved and then you'll have to treat them like a normal human being. That's what the church state brought us. How many see a problem with the church state? Listen, folks, this world is not my home. We are just passing through. My treasure, my king, my country is way beyond the blue. That's what matters. Because I'm a child of the king, Jesus Christ. So many times the presupposition that we bring to the text, many times, is that for one of them, Israel, the church has replaced Israel. That is absolutely false. And so the writings that talk about the church or talk about Israel in the Old Testament, all those are applicable to the church. They're not. That was a specific people God raised up called Israel. And by the way, He's not done with Israel. Revelation chapter 11 is very clear on that. Revelation. Romans chapter 11. And Revelation, the whole book is very clear on that. You go to chapter 6 and 7 of how He saves 144,000 people. Who are those people? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses think it's them. But they aren't one of the tribes mentioned in the text of the 144,000. So what did they do? They brought in their theology to change Scripture to fit their theology. The Bible says it's 12,000 from every tribe. And how many tribes are there? Well, 12 times 12 is 144. Right? Just let the Scripture say what it says. Stop tinkering with it. But, so we have to be careful about not applying Israeli uh, truths to the church. But there's also another aspect of this that's so important. God doesn't change. The peoples of God has changed. Although, they will become a peoples of God again. Romans 11. But, God does not change. So how does God deal with evil and how does God deal with good countries? That doesn't change. How many understand that? 
And the reality is, Jonah was told to go and preach repentance to Nineveh, a wicked, nasty, horrible place. There are similarities principally to how we are to be the light and salt of this country, America. Amen. And we must be preaching repentance. I find it very interesting that there's a group of Christians who want to just disband the term repentance and not use it. Or if they do use it, they will modify it to make something very short. The reality is, we as Christians are to be preaching repentance to a lost and dying country. And frankly, to a lost and dying world. There are similarities in principle, but we serve the same God. Folks, here's the deal. Evil has a shelf life. Did you hear that? Evil has a date on it. God will deal with it. It's the same God that dealt with Israel and Judah and Persia and Assyria and Babylon. And we're going to see the historical context of how he did that all the way through. Because Jonah, let's just be honest, it just gets thrown, oh, that's one of those prophets. I have no idea who the king was. I don't know. I have any idea who was prophesying Except I know he was prophesying for God, but I don't know to what specific country. I don't know what was going on in the world. How many would say, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so let's figure out what's going on in order to place Jonah in a context that we can understand. Does that make sense? And that's what we're going to do this morning. <clears throat> like I said last week, Jonah means dove. And just a little test to bring it back to our remembrance. When it says dove, what's the biblical understanding of dove? A pigeon. Therefore, we called him the homing pigeon, right? Because it's all about his home. It's not about anything else. It's not about God. It's not about souls. It's not about seeing people repent. It's about my country. He was from the city of Gath Heifer. We find that he choose, chose, as a prophet of God, to try to go 2,500 miles to a little town called Tarsus on the south west side of Spain, instead of going 550 miles to a little place called Nineveh, on the other side of the Tigris River. It shows the starting point of Joppa, but really his birthplace was in a place called Gath, Gath, uh, Gath Heifer. And I'm going to quickly... This is Gath Heifer. Let's change colors. There's Gath Heifer. Here is Nazareth. <clears throat> and one important spot that we all need to be aware of is Sepphoris. Nazareth in the New Testament, Jesus said he was from Nazareth. Remember that? What did they say about Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Why would they say that? These are Jews just like them. Well, first of all, they're Hellenized Jews. <clears throat> but the other thing is, they were building a city for the gods of Rome in Sepphoris. I know for a fact that they came out of Nazareth 
I'm guessing they also came out of Gath Heifer three miles away. For instance, how many of you are living in, or right now, are in Grand Rapids? Are you all in Grand Rapids right now? Actually, you're in La Prairie, but it's understood as Grand Rapids. How many understand that? All right. Reality is, Gath Hepper is very close. It's a bedroom city. They're next to each other. <clears throat> That's where Jonah was from. By the way, that makes there's a lot of similarities between Jesus and Jonah. By the way, it's it, this is the Sea of Galilee. We have Capernaum, Gennesaret. Those are important. How many have ever heard of those cities? You will know more about that during the life of Christ when we get there. The Sea of Galilee was a place they could fish. There was not salt. The Jordan River right here runs out of it. <clears throat> and this whole plain right here, oh, you can't double up. That is called the Valley of Jezreel or the Je Valley of Megiddo, which from what we understand in eschatology, the last battle is the Battle of Armageddon out in Megiddo, all right? And so, how many have a geographic understanding of what's going on? Talked about this last week. <clears throat> so here again, you have the valley, you have Gath Hepner, and you have Nazareth right in here. Then you have Sepphoris. All right. <clears throat> this was done during a time when there was, this is where we ended last week, there was a separation between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Was that God's intended plan? Trick question, isn't it? <laughs> Did sin divide these people? Yes, absolutely. Israel and Judah. Judah was in the south, Israel was in the north. <clears throat> The Bible passages that we know of, Matthew 12, 39 through 41, that passage tells us just like three days and three nights in the belly of the whale of the fish, not whale, so will Jesus be three days and three nights in the in the earth. What does that mean? We'll get to that when we get to that text. Jonah or Luke chapter eleven deals with the same aspect. They call it the sign of Jonah. How many remember that? It's very interesting. We will show you there's an ossuary. That's a, a, a small sarcophagus. How many know what an ossuary was or a sarcophagus is or a tomb is? Or a, what do they call it today? A, uh, a box, an urn, or a coffin, right? So what they would do in that time frame is they would get, take the body into the tomb let it all rot away, come back, open the tomb, take the bones, put it in an ossuary, and put it in with a bunch of family members in a certain area of the cave. That's how they would do it. And that's in one of those ossuaries, there's literally, they call it the Jesus ossuary. Does anybody see a problem with that? <laughs> the Jesus ossuary. <clears throat> And by the way, here, here's what's ridiculous. They're, and I'm getting way ahead of myself because I love this stuff. <clears throat> they literally tested the DNA to see if it was Jesus. What? 
<clears throat> from what I read, Jesus rose from the dead. There was nothing there. I mean, think that's an important discussion we need to have. There are literally Christians who believe in that ossuary. I will tell you this. I don't know how you can be. If you believe that Jesus is still, his bones are in his ossuary, you have a problem and you do not have a God Jesus. Regardless, there's pictures of Noah and the fish on this ossuary. It's quite interesting. Second Kings also gives us a little bit about Jonah. Jonah's the one that prophesied during Jehos- Jeroboam the second's reign. Here's the problem. That was 40 years. And they don't really know where Jonah fits in at all this. They have Jonah fitting in about a hundred year span. I can tell you, Jonah wasn't a hundred years when he went to Nineveh. We don't really know all the specifics with the dates and things, but I will tell you, in 2 Kings, we know that Jonah prophesied that Israel would, be, would flourish, would grow, would expand, would be uh, economically stable and profitable, and that happened. What was Jonah's life? We find Jonah falls in a time frame right here is Jonah. I wouldn't put him at 800, but I wouldn't put him at 690 either. I would put him in between these dates right in here. It's funny, Assyria at this moment is basically the, the world power, if you will. And Assyria is going through a major transition during Jonah's life. Assyria is one of the oldest sects of people that have ever been on this earth. Literally, they are in the um, thousands B.C.'s. And they last all the way, well, it all depends on how, who you think they are, but regardless, they're still thousands of years later alive as a people's group. How many understand that? This is huge. And during this time specifically in their history, it goes from the one peoples that were in charge of it for thousands of years, and it changes to a different lineage, a different line of family during this time. I'm wondering if this repentance had something to do with it. It's very interesting, though. So during this time, you have two kingdoms, the early part. Then you have Israel being taken captive by Assyria and leaves Judah alone. And they eventually get taken by Babylon, and we'll see that as we go further. The timeline of Jonah, again, is totally not understood for sure, but it's, I think it's a fair treatment that it goes between this life, this span. I'll put it on the blue so you can see that. Jeho- Jeroboam II becomes the king of Israel. By the way, to be honest with you, although Jeroboam isn't the technically last king, he basically is. Because what goes on is insane. What goes on, you read it, and well, we will read it in 2 Kings chapter 15. 
And you'll find out this king kills that king to become king, which kills that king to become king, which kills that king to become... How many get an idea what's going on? It's just Rome all over. Although precursor to Rome because of history. <coughs> Reality is Jeroboam II was king for 40 years. 40 years. <coughs> And in those 40 years, Jeroboam II is known as a wicked, evil king. During those 40 years, 40 to 41 years, Jerusalem, or, uh, uh, Israel had grown, the, what historians say, was as big as it ever was in, the, in, in its entire life, which was Solomon's reach. How many understand that? He had everything that Solomon had. They owned all that. The, the, the milk and honey. How many understand that? They experienced that. Great wealth. Great peace in a sense. And they were evil. So how many of you would, would agree with, I believe it's Habakkuk or Haggai or Habakkuk, why is God still blessing the wicked? Because His plans are far beyond our plans. He has, as Mr. Gaiman said this morning, absolutely, totally sovereign. Jonah's prophetic ministry, we people don't know exactly, but it's in this time frame. He, <clears throat> by the way, he overlaps, if you will, same time frame really as Isaiah and Amos. We're going to see that in a little bit. So that's his life when he lived. We don't know much about him besides what I've told you, but we do know a lot about the theology involved in all of this. What is Jonah's theology? Well, the book of Jonah, and not, this isn't Jonah's personal theology. This is the book of Jonah's theology. How many understand that? How does divine mercy and divine justice interact with each other without canceling out each other? Think about that. Is God merciful? How do you know He's merciful? I will tell you how I know He's merciful. He saved me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It's just ask my wife. But His mercy, He saved me. Where does this justice come in? Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, true? God blesses nations and He curses and judges nations. How does the divine mercy and divine justice interact without canceling out each other? It's a really good question. The second one, how do God's universal sovereignty and His particular covenant with Israel interact without canceling each other out? Let me ask you this, is Israel God's eternal people? Yes, they are. 
Well, then how in the world did he wipe them out here by taking, and by the way, to be honest with you, apart from 1948, however you view that, I would not view that as a prophecy fulfilled, by the way. However you view Israel back in their country, the reality is this is a podunk part of Israel, Jewish people, in the northern tribes. They're taken away to Syria, and guess what? They never come back. They're gone. They're out of there. How does God's... And what does that look like then? They carry the name Israel, but they don't even exist. How many get this? The early church had that same problem in the first couple of hundred years after um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because in AD 70, if you remember, what happened to Israel? And actually Judah. But the whole area of Israel. What happened to it? It was wiped. Jerusalem was wiped out. They were carried as slaves to all these countries. They were dispersed. It was sacked. The temple destroyed. Never to be used again. By the way, isn't it neat how God has double providence? What does that mean? He uses nature and He uses people. Did He use Titus to destroy Jerusalem? Absolutely. Did He use nature to save Jonah's life? And you could argue, well, he actually knew that fish from the before he was born. It was all designed by God. But how in, in the early church, they didn't see anymore. It's all gone. Israel was history, gone, spread all over, and they became secular. They became like everybody else, wherever they went, they became like them. To the Romans, they became Roman. Even pagan in some aspects. But they lost a majority. There was no Judaism as we know it maybe even today. So how is it that God will still keep His promises to Israel? How can you say that? I look out there and how many know where Israel is today? They're one of the most secular countries in the world. Pagan. It's all about themselves. Kind of like America, but worse. How in the world can we say that that is the God's chosen people? Look at how bad they are. There's only one way we, one way we can answer that question. What is it? God says it. And if God says they are, that settles it, right? There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So, how do God's universal start? But you can see how this works. Is you just got rid of the people that you said you were your eternal people. How? Why? Well, there's a passage of Scripture that we're all going to participate in this morning. And that is Jeremiah 18, 7-12. I will read the red because it's a little bit harder to read red from back there. And then you will read the white. Is that okay? The only way we can do I'd have you take out your Bibles, but that would be a... We'd sound like Pentecostals that drank too much. 
Anyways, the point of the matter is, you'd be all, all these different versions, right? So we're going to use this version specifically and re- listen to what it's saying, the text. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy. If turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say, It's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. This is pretty powerful. Because as you notice, we're done, okay? You don't have to read this anymore. You can read it with your eyes, not your mouth. Is this speaking of a specific nation to start with? No. It ends up talking about Judah. But the first part of the text is talking about who God is and what He does to any nation. Is that not true? And He's going to show us that in the book of Jonah to a perverted, pagan, ritualistic, horrible country. He's going to save them because it's His plan. And here's why. Because they do repent. And he talks about how God is the one that will bless those that are doing what's right. Correct? Obeying His voice. At one moment he says, and this is God. So we can apply this to our own country, by the way. Not the Judah part specifically, but this part, this is God and who He is and what He does. How many understand this? It's so important. I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to pull it down, or destroy it. If that nation, which I have spoken, whichever one that is, turns from its evil, who turns from its evil that we're going to read in Jonah? Nineveh. I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it. Folks, America is in the same boat today. And our words, our message, our proclamation must be the same. Repent! Repent! Or another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. 
Now, this passage is not specifically talking about America. Did you hear that? This, what we just read, is talking about God, who He is, and what He does, and He deals with nations just like this. We can be one of those nations. And I think we are one of those nations. He obviously, in His sovereignty, planted this nation. But let me ask you, do you think He is thinking better of the good which He promised to bless it? Wholeheartedly. Jonah's not talking about America. It's talking about Nineveh. It's talking about Israel. But God is much more than just those two countries. And the principles are the same. I think this is, we should all memorize this passage of Scripture to keep us to remember, preach repentance and faith. I have no idea where I am at my notes. Look at the response of the people. It's hopeless. Everyone is following their own plans, and each one of us will act according to the Germanness of their evil heart. True? It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about others. This is the theology that is being brought about in Jonah. Because what he's doing, listen, what he's, think about this in a big picture. What he's doing, he is being told to, in essence, prophesy against Israel by proclaiming the, the repentance to the enemy before a God that he knows has already told him, and if he told him, he's going to do it. And then what's going to happen to my country? So Jonah has a choice. I just prophesied to Jeroboam that this will be the greatest success story that the world has ever known. And here we are. I know we're evil, but God can bless it. And God says, Jonah, go to your enemy, tell him to repent, and I will save them. God, I don't want you to save them. I don't want them to repent. I don't want them to have grace of your grace. I don't want them to find mercy in your heart. I don't want any of that. I love my country so much that they can go to hell. That's exactly what he's saying. And so he turns his back and heads the total opposite way in total abandon of God's rule, God's law, and total blasphemy. Pfft, whatever. This is important. Not that. I'm not doing that. Well, we know the story. Yes, you will. Verse 
By the way, there's more to it. But how many can see that this country aspect is a major aspect in this story? It's major. It is the... By the way, there are a lot of motivations, and I will give you motivations that I think might be a Jonas. I don't know. Nobody knows motivations. What we do know is that he embraces country more than the souls of others. That we know for sure. How else does God deal with countries, with people groups? Romans 11, 28-36, I'll read this. It says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they, Israel, are the enemies for your sake. Now let me ask you, I'm not saying this is a type or anything like that, but isn't that exactly? Was Jonah an enemy for the gospel to Nineveh? Absolutely. It wasn't the gospel that we know, but it was the gospel there's a God and He is much more powerful than me. He's the only God there is. Repent or He will destroy you. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they, Israel, are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and His calling are what? Irrevocable. Did God call Israel to be His people? That is irrevocable. Did you have a son or a daughter birthed to you as a family? They will always be your son and daughter. You may discipline them. You may bless them. But they're always going to be your son and daughter. The same thing is true with, Jesus, with Israel according to this text. Amen? It's irrevocable. God's gifts and His calls are irrevocable. But, there's a but here. But you as Gentiles, who were at one time disobedient to God, you were, just like Nineveh, totally disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their, Israel's, disobedience. Now, think about this. This is exactly what's going on in Jonah. Jonah is this wicked, or Jonah, yeah, he is wicked. <coughs> but Israel is this wicked country. And God is going to discipline them. The whole aspect of how he's going to discipline is listen, I'm going to give, I'm going to give these guys that they hate, that they are the enemies and they are pagan, I'm going to give them grace and mercy. They are going to repent. Then I'm going to use them to discipline Israel. How many know that that is exactly what happens? It is. It's exactly what happens. The same thing here. Because of Israel's disobedience, you and I have now been able to receive mercy. So they, Israel, too, have now become disobedient in order that Israel, too, may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. He said, hold it, hold it, hold it. Now, listen, these guys went AWOL. Israel went AWOL. And you Gentiles are the beneficiary. You will receive grace and mercy. 
But one day you are going to go AWOL. And your disobedience is going to be the cause of the Jews giving grace and mercy. How many understand that? It's exactly what's played out in this text of Romans chapter 11. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that they may have mercy on them all. Say, well, that's not fair. Who does that? Who can do that? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. I mean, God's going to do this. Uh, uh, You can almost guarantee He's not going to do that. Who has known the mind of God? Can any of us know the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? Who has been his counselor? Who's telling him? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? I mean, these are ridiculous questions. Why? Because from him and through him and for him are all things. Amen. And because all things to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a powerful passage. How many see the similarities, principally speaking? That's the theology involved in Jonah. Now, the historical setting. The historical setting quickly. I want to get done so that we're done with the historical setting. First of all, Jeroboam II, like I said, son of Joash, king of Israel, 789 to 748 BC. Jeroboam II ruled Israel longer than any other king. No other king outruled him. Amos condemns Jeroboam's wickedness in Amos chapter 7. He was a wicked king, and we'll tell you what he did next. Josephus states, and this is condensed, so. Josephus states that Jeroboam II did insult treatments against God. He insulted him. He worshipped idols. His undertakings were absurd and foreign. Kind of like Solomon with how many concubines? He was the cause of 10,000 misfortunes of the people of Israel. He was not a good king. This is where Jonah lived. This is where Jonah prophesied. More peace and prosperity unequaled since the days of Solomon. Brought to Israel wealth and luxury. And all of that's reflected in the book of Amos and Hosea. Both are found there. Assyria. Assyria was... From 1700, I told you this before, but 1700 to 722, that's a thousand years there was one family in charge of it. One family. During, at at the moment, now some people literally, see 722, do you all see that up there? Some commentators believe that Jonah was there in 725. So we're right, right at that precipice, right? In 722 there was a, a civil war, and their new dynasty took over from seven to, for a hundred years, basically, and that's the time frame of when 
Jonah would have been somewhere between these two during this civil war. That's Nineveh. That's Assyria. And, and by the way, it be, Nineveh eventually became the capital of Syria. It wasn't to begin with. This was a divided kingdom here in Israel. The promised land was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was Israel. They ceased to exist in 722 B.C. About the time that Jonah went over there and preached to the Ninevites is when it, it ceased to exist. The capital city, how many know the capital city of Israel? Many of you will get this wrong. Capital city of Israel, I know it's hard to read. Samaria, just north of Jerusalem. The first king was Jeroboam. And I would argue the last normal king was Jeroboam II. Although there was like four or five other kings. We'll see that. The southern kingdom of Judah, dates they died basically in 587. They were hauled off to Babylon. But then they were brought back by Babylon. And their first king was Rehoboam. So this is what it looks like. And this is an important picture we need to understand. This is what's going on. You have Israel being taken captive to Assyria, going all over to different places. You have then eventually in Judah, and, and I really believe this, God was like, hey Judah, wake up. Look what I'm doing to Israel. And what I'm doing to Israel, don't you dare think I'm not going to do it to you. Well, they didn't heed. They didn't repent. They were evil, just like Israel. Israel was evil. God took them out. Judah became evil. God's going to take them out. And they took them out to Babylon, which we know Daniel, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's also this little town called Susa. Hmm. Anybody remember Susa? Good. The story of Esther with the Persians, though. Okay? So, God, here's the deal. Did God bless Israel? Yes or no? Amen and amen. Yeah, absolutely. Did they turn their back of God? Did they repent? Not in the end. For 40 years, we know, longer than that, for 60, 80 years, they had wicked kings. And God said, enough is enough. And He used a pagan kingdom to judge God's blessed people. If God's going to do that to them for their unrepentant heart, what is He going to do today? It's the same God. God has blessed this nation greatly, but we need to repent. The church needs to repent. but I think we find an unrepentant people, just like Judah. Now, Babylon eventually did send them back, but that's not the story we're dealing with today. The Persians eventually, so we have Assyria, which included Babylon at the time. We included all that area at the time of taking. Then the Persians came and overthrew them, and eventually they owned almost the whole known world. The Persians, this gives you an idea of context. How many remember stories of the Persian? 
Let me give you, how many of you are, are, are gun-toting Americans? Okay. Come and take it, or come and get it. What is that talking about? How many remember that term? How many have ever seen that term, that phrase? I wish I could give it to you in Greek, but I can't. La, la, I, I'm not going to be able to. <clears throat> Labe. Uh, here's the deal. The king of Persia, who had just conquered the Assyrians and all that area, went to try to fight Greece. And they went to a little place called what? They went to Troy. And they went to Sparta. How many remember Spartan? The Spartan helmets. Something Labay is the term. I can't remember the name of it. They were the Spartans, the 300. How many remember the 300 at Sir... Uh, I can't remember the name of the place. But they... Triopolis? Theopolis. Okay. They... 300 of them killed thousands of the Persians. The Persians eventually won. But then the Persians went against the Grecians as a whole and they lost in a, a, a water battle. And come and get it was, I've got a sword, you come and get it. And they gave it to them. That's where that comes from. How many know the context a little bit of where we're at now? I think it's important. The reality is, God has been doing this for a long time. Israel, in 734 to 721, He said, Israel, you have disobeyed Me. You will be judged. I'm going to take a pagan country. I'm actually going to give them a prophet, and they're going to repent. Then they're going to come over and conquer you. Talk about insult to injury. This is how God works. And Israel was taken because of their disobedience and unfaithfulness to God. Assyria then. Here's Assyria. Did Assyria repent? Generally speaking, in Nineveh, did they repent? Nineveh repented. This is God. What are we going to do? Repent. They did. They repented, but guess what? In Babylon... They were destroyed by Babylon. 626 to 606. Why? Why does God take down cities, countries and bring them up? It's on the faithfulness and obedience to God over, 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 over again. Judah. Here's again. Part of God's called people. They did evil. They disobeyed. They were unfaithful. What does He use? He uses Babylon... Not only do they conquer Assyria, but now they conquer Judah and take them into captivity. Why? Disobedience on Judah's part. God uses all peoples. He used Pharaoh. He used Hitler even. Then came the Persians. Babylon. By the way, did Babylon have... Are there questions in our minds if the Babylonian king might have known God? Yes or no? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I don't want Daniel thrown in that lion's den. But I opened my big fat mouth. And he did. And he was thrown in. And he rushes over there. He's saved. Oh, praise God. And then acting like a, was it, uh, some kind of animal, eat grass. That's where that story, well, what happened? Persia comes in. Persia comes in and destroys them, takes them all over. Another country falls, another one grows. Persia. Persia is destroyed by Greece. We talked about Thermopylae. <laughs> but then they go attack them with ships, they get destroyed. And within a hundred years, there's a man. His name is Alexander the Great. Where is Alexander the Great from? Greece. Specifically east of Troy. Right in main Greece. A place called Macedonia. What does he do? He goes then to Persia and eradicates and destroys the whole thing. He dies. He gives them over to all these different places over to his generals. So you have Egypt. You have Rome. You have Turkey. You have... Persia area, all those are divided all up. And then comes Rome. In 134, God destroys Greece and raises up Rome. By the way, we just made it to the New Testament. Did you follow that? I just took you from the separation of Israel and Judah all the way through history to the New Testament. That's what we're talking about in Jonah's life, specifically the first part right here, right there. That's where we're at in the historical context of Jonah. Now, I have, we have read together Jeremiah. Fantastic passage of Scripture, was it not? I want to bring one more to your remembrance. First, Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people... Who is he talking about here? Israel. Who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, Turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let me ask you is this the same God that is alive today? Are the principles the same? Most dogmatically, yes. This country is past needing a revival this country needs a repentance and the church is where it begins in some aspects the church is nothing different than a little America wicked sinful hypocritical and not repentive I find pastor after pastor, I want to talk to them. I hardly get to talk to any pastors. I go down to their churches and say, hey, 
and, and, and they see me, they want to shake my hand. They're like, I can't, I'm fighting a fire in the church. The same pastor has told me that three times of the three times I've seen him. I praise the Lord for this church. I praise the Lord for this church. Firefighting has not been my motif. <laughs> but I will tell you, I have seen in all of our lives, including my own, we all need repentance and humility. And we need to turn from our wicked ways and embrace Jesus Christ and His Word. From the 1960s and 70s, everybody was screaming, Revival! We need revival! We need revival! This is what makes revival! This makes revival! That makes revival! Listen, blah, 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 blah. I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I need Him. Until that happens, revival is simply a game that is religiously played, organized, manipulated, and never lasts. How many are excited about Jonah? How many say this is right principally where we're at today? And it's the same God. Who's to say anything's going to be different? All right. I'm going to stop there. And we are going to pray. And do not forget next week, uh, Mr. Peter, Dr. Peter Gaiman, is coming, and he'll be preaching both the CE hour, so no neo-Calvinism is gone next week. He'll be preaching the church Sunday or the church session also. They're probably I don't know, but there probably won't be Jonah, <clears throat> and you'll be able to get a respite from me. Praise the Lord. And you will be able to listen to him. He has studied the Old Testament so much and knows so much about it. I love him dearly. I'm excited to hear from him. So pray for that special Sunday next week. And also, I would encourage you to um, pray for him as he is coming here to preach. Uh, it's not simply academics. It's not simply rote or higher learning. It's a passion for the Word. He knows and loves the Lord and it comes out in His words. That's what matters. Alright, Mr. Gaiman, can you close us in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Please stand, I'll pray and we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, thank you for your word. We are uh, astounded and humbled with the parallels we see in our nation compared to that which was going on in Jonah's time. 
I just pray that your word would have its effect in us individually and perhaps you'll be gracious and merciful to this nation. But nonetheless, Lord, empower us to be obedient and to love you above all else as history unfolds. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.